today we have a story for you that we have all heard about before. At least here in the U.S., we all know this case by the name associated with the town it happened in. This case and what happened after spurred a huge amount of publicity, including horror movies and books. Today we are discussing the Ronald DeFeo Jr. murders, or what is better known as the Amityville Horror. Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Don't forget to hit subscribe. We're your hosts. I'm Melissa. And I'm Jeff. And this story all started in November of 1974 when Ronald DeFeo Jr. ran into a local tavern asking for help because he thought his parents had been shot. At first, no one believed him, but after a few minutes, when Ronald DeFeo Jr. was still pleading with the tavern patrons, they started to believe him. A small group of them proceeded to his home, and what they found that day still haunts them. Every member of the DeFeo family, aside from Ronald DeFeo Jr., was lying dead in their beds. All six victims, Ronald Jr.'s parents, Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Louise DeFeo, as well as Ronald Jr.'s siblings, Dawn, 18, Allison, 13, Mark, 12, and John Matthew, 9. The first indication of strange activity that surrounded the murder was that police found them in their beds, killed by a rifle, as if no one had attempted to fight back. Both parents were found to be shot twice, and the four children had each been shot once. There is evidence that Mother Louise and daughter Allison were awake when they were killed, but there is no evidence of a struggle. All the victims were found lying face down in their beds. It would seem like shots from a rifle would wake up the neighbors. It's not like the house was in the middle of nowhere but the rifle blast didn't even disturb other members of the family. As a matter of fact, the rifle didn't disturb the neighbors who only reported hearing the family's sheepdog barking. This house literally had three floors. Whomever shot the DeFeo family walked from room to room, from floor to floor, in silence. We looked up the gun that was used in this, and it was a Marlin Model 336C that shot a 35 caliber Remington shell. Uh, so to picture it, unless you want to look it up, it's like a like something you would see like an old west, like a bolt. Or, I'm sorry, like a lever action, uh, longer rifle, and it's not quiet. Like it's kind of loud. <laughs> like I mean, all guns are loud, but I can't imagine. It's it's just so hard to believe that no one was awoken by. A rifle going off eight times. Especially because neighbors could hear the sheepdog barking, right? I mean, if they're close enough to hear the dog barking, they should be close enough to hear rifle shots. Well, and the dog obviously heard it. Right. <laughs> right. But when I when I looked this up, I tried looking up, like, how do people think that he silenced this gun? Police say that there was no silencer used. Yeah, I don't even think you can get a silencer for a 1950s rifle. And I googled things like, can you silence a gun with a pillow? I mean, you see that in the movies. Or a towel. 
and the general consensus on that is no it may silence it a tiny bit but it does not do a good job whatsoever and you know the part that i find like the creepy the creepiest about the last like paragraph that you read was the that they're all lying face down yeah so they're all stomach sleepers it is, it is strange. You know, like, I could see, like, maybe a couple of them sleep on their stomach. but And I didn't see anything about, like, repositioning of them. I mean, because I feel like they should know that, right? Based upon, like, blood and whatnot. You know, like, oh, yeah, they for were sure. killed, if they were repositioned, things Absolutely. like that. And I, I didn't see anything on that. You know, they were just all on their stomachs, and they were shot. Did it say, like, where they were shot? Like, were they shot in the head? Were they shot in the body? It, it did say. I didn't specifically note it for all of the victims. The reason I ask is because not all gunshots kill you instantly. You know what I mean? Like, people get right. shot all the time and move around afterwards. Like, oh my god, I'm a shot. Which I would think would be why the assailant shot the parents twice, right? They probably thought that they were more likely to fight back and whatnot, whereas the children, it was probably less of a concern that they would get up and fight back. That's still crazy, though, that no one heard anything. It is, but now if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're a true crime fan. You probably already know that Ronald DeFeo Jr. was convicted of these murders, but it is still unknown how he committed them all in silence without anyone struggling, as we've been saying. Ronnie did tell police that he sedated the family, which would make sense as to why they didn't struggle, especially the mother and the sister you know, because evidence showed that they were probably awake during the murders. But the autopsy report did not show anything in anyone's system. They ran toxicology tests on the blood, urine, and the organs of the victims, and nothing. And this still doesn't explain how the neighbors didn't hear the gunshots. And so if they were awake but still lying face down? Right. That's odd, too. I mean, and maybe he made them, you know, get face down. Um, That seems almost more likely. That he had them all, like, rounded up and led each one to their room. You know what I mean? Like, and had them lay face down and then shot them and then took the next one. You know what I mean? Like, Except for the ones that evidence showed were sleeping. I I wonder how they figured that out, I don't know. I don't know. But, um... He did claim that he gave them high doses of barbiturates, but you would think that that would show up on a toxicology report. That would definitely show up on a toxicology report. I mean, I don't know how advanced that is in 1975, but you would think, I mean, they're doing the test, you'd think they know what they're looking for. Right. As if the fact that the murderer was unheard and unnoticed didn't already spark suspicion that something supernatural was at play, the family was murdered in the middle of the night. It's mainly suspected that they were killed somewhere in the area of 3 a.m. The hour between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. is known as the witching hour. If you're not familiar with what the witching hour is, it has the same principle as Halloween. It's generally believed that Halloween is the day of the year where the veil between the living and the dead is the thinnest. That's why we're supposed to wear the scary costumes to scare away these evil spirits. The witching hour is the hour in the day that the veil between the living and the dead is the thinnest. When you were young, were you ever so frightened in the middle of the night that you were afraid to sleep? Have you ever had sleep paralysis? 
I personally used to pull my blankets up over my head and lay there too terrified to move until I fell back asleep. I'm not a huge believer in the paranormal, but it definitely interests me. I don't discount it, but I usually lead toward more scientific explanations. A lot of people feel that the witching hour is the explanation for these middle-of-the-night fears and feelings because the veil between the two worlds is thin. Do you believe in the witching hour? I don't. I also have a problem with this theory because of, like, time zones. Yeah. I mean, say some, like, demons are all together and they're like, all right, man, witching hour's coming up. And I was like, nah, dude, we're on the West Coast right now. We got to wait three more hours for the witching hour. Right. I did see, though, that, like, some people do in their belief systems have, like, explanations for, like, this sort of thing. Like, there's a universal underworld time that they all go by. (laughs) Right. I mean, maybe they, maybe, you know, the ghosts all go by Eastern Standard Time. (laughs) Well, maybe Eastern ghosts do. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure on that one. When police first took Ronnie to the police station, it was for his own protection. He had told the police that he suspected a mob hit on the family. But the particular mobster that Ronnie had named, Louis Fellini, had an airtight alibi for the time of the murders, and he could prove he was out of state. The next day, Ronnie confessed. He stated that once he started, he just couldn't stop. He killed his entire family, bathed, redressed, and simply went to work with his grandfather at the car dealership as usual. He came home and pretended to find the victims' bodies and run to the tavern for help. I feel like that's like in every like mobster movie, though. Like they can always prove their. Oh yeah, they state. always have. I think that's like mobster one hundred and one is your alibi system. Right. I mean, I'm not saying he did it or had anything to do with it, but I just feel like that's in every mobster movie I've ever seen. We were talking about something else too about where someone had I forget what it was. Someone had an alibi, and then they just like moved on. You know, it was in that that thing I was I was watching that thing on those uh, the robbery of that museum. And this one guy had, like, an alibi or something. And then they're like, all right, well, that rules him out. So, like, once you, ha- once you like, place that alibi, to disprove that, they have to have someone place you somewhere else. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if, they, if you can prove that you were somewhere, like, say, a plane ticket or whatever, a receipt from a restaurant, like, out of state, unless someone can actually place you somewhere else, you're good. Mm. So, you know, they've been asking a lot about, like, do you want your receipt? Like, since COVID started, right? They're not, like, handing those out. I should definitely start getting, like, my receipts more. (laughs) Just in case you need an airtight alibi. Right. Ronnie's lawyer probably looked at the story the same way I am. No one heard the gunshots. The murder may have occurred during the witching hour. And since the boy had already confessed, you know, the only option is to go with insanity. The only chance. The defense was that Ronnie had killed his family in self-defense because he heard their voices plotting against him. Well, that's a tough sell. They even had a psychiatrist to back their insanity claim. But the prosecution also had a psychiatrist that claimed Ronnie DeFeo had antisocial personality disorder and was aware of his actions. Ronnie also used heroin and LSD, which was taken into account in the trial. That seems like a... uh basically a nightmare scenario for a defense lawyer it does like why would you even take the case 
Unless it's like a public defender, which it doesn't really say. But. At first, I think he was using a lawyer that his grandfather was paying for. And I think that it changed to a public defender. <laughs> right. Because who, I mean, geez. Like, we had to go with self-defense against the voices in my head. Well, probably That's- not only that. I mean, you have to think that the grandfather probably at first maybe wanted to hire someone to defend his grandson. Right, because he didn't think he did it. But then as soon as he confessed, yeah. like, oh, you just, you know, killed my children and yeah, my other grandchildren. We're going to pull the chain on that lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's so tough, though. Like, there's no way. I, as a lawyer, I'm trying to, like, imagine the lawyer as being like, You know, like, what do you do? Yeah, if I was a defense attorney, this is why I could not take this job. Because as a defense attorney, you have to do your job, right? You have to do it thoroughly. Your goal is to defend people. But if I thought that they were guilty, I would have, like, the worst defense ever. I would not not get hired. I would be like, I want them to fry. So um, my defense is going to be just horrible. The motive for the murders from the trial's perspective was money. It does seem that Ronnie did ask the police how he could cash in on his father's life insurance, but no one really knows. It seems that Ronald DeFeo Sr. was pretty hard on his son, expecting a lot from him and possibly abusing the boy, even in front of other people. Family members came forward to say that they would be at a family function and Ronald would all of a sudden push Ronnie up against a wall. There were more than a few stories like this, and I personally think... If it was like this around people, what was it like behind closed doors? In 2002, Ronnie gave a primetime live interview from prison where he stated his parents were abusive and he committed the mass murder while drunk and high on heroin. But was still awfully quiet, moving around the house. Yeah, I don't I don't see money as being a motivator here. I just don't. There's no way you're getting away with that. And even an ill-conceived plot to get money life insurance money out of it it's just there's no way and there was a two hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy which was a lot in in that day but also he could have been asking let's let's just go from the prospect of innocence here he could have been asking that because he then had to bury many members of his family right you know i just feel like asking about life insurance alone isn't really like a indicator of guilt it's definitely not I don't know. It definitely raises eyebrows, though. It does. There's also suspicion that there may have been a large amount of money, like, hidden in the basement. But in that case, why kill them? Why not just take the money Right, take the money, yeah. Hit the boathouse, get on the the water. Ronnie was convicted of six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 years on each count. After Ronnie was convicted, he would change his story of what happened multiple times. The first story was that the voices in the house made him do it. Others included that his sister Dawn had killed his father, which led the mother to kill the siblings before he killed Dawn. Another is that his sister Dawn and an unknown person killed the family and he killed Dawn in a struggle over the rifle by accident in self-defense. Dawn's unknown partner in crime then ran away, never to be heard from again. He also claimed at a point that he was married to Geraldine Gates and her brother helped him commit the murders. But they later found Geraldine was married to someone else at this time and had nothing to do with the murders. 
and the brother that Ronnie spoke of didn't exist. Ronnie, only 23 at the time of the murders, remained incarcerated until his death last month on March 12, 2021. I wonder why they don't go for like first degree murder on this. I wondered that too, but maybe with the defense of like the voices and whatnot, they just thought that they couldn't get that premeditation, maybe, you know, in the drug use as well. Yeah, I, I feel like though, like with him saying that he drugged them, there's definitely, you can make a case for premeditation. But even though he said that, they have to prove it right in the medical exam. Right, no, no, I that. get that too. I mean, and not that it really matters unless, I right. mean, he, he has to die like three times before he gets out of jail, so. Right, I mean, he definitely got his punishment in this case. And I feel like nowadays we see, like, murders committed and the sentencing, it's generally felt by the public that the sentencing is too short. And, I mean, this definitely, he was 23 and he spent the rest of his life in prison, so. And this would sound like the end to a horrific mass murder, but strangely it's not. Newlyweds George and Kathy Lutz were looking for a place for their family when they ran across the beautiful five-bedroom, three-floor, three-and-a-half-bath waterfront property with Boathouse for $80,000 in December of 1975. is equivalent to the purchasing power of about $390,000 today. And was about double the price of the average house in that year. And, you know, it's said that they got a deal. The Lutz family was able to put a substantial down payment on the house as both George and Kathy were homeowners and had sold their previous residences. In 2010, the house, with some updating, sold for $950,000. I looked at pictures of the inside of the house for this particular sale, and if you want to see them, I'll mark the link in the show notes. Oh my God, what a beautiful home. Yeah, it really was. The creepy view of the home that we often see is a side view of the house. It's like the road view, but still a side view of like the house itself. The front door to the home doesn't overlook the street. It overlooks the beautiful front yard to the home. The front of the house isn't creepy at all. No, but the side is. I mean, after looking at the front, I don't really feel like the side does. Are you, I mean, how? Jeff have been having this argument all morning. It looks like creepy eyes. They did um, like do some updating to that side of the house to make it look a little bit less creepy. Yeah, they made the, so the window's like kind of, I'm sure everybody knows what it looks like, but it's like 90 degree. It was like, it almost looks like a protractor. Kind of. Right. It, it, to me, it looks like eyes. I don't know. But now they're just like regular square windows. Right. And they also changed the address to the home, um, you know, because they don't like all the Yeah, well, they changed it from like by. 108 to 112 or 112, whatever, whichever way it, it went. Was the back, yeah, that's backwards. It was like 112 to 108. Yeah, so not a huge change there. And I read something a long time ago. I think after I watched one of the movies about this, I kind of looked into it a little bit. And I guess the people that either the current owners or people that owned it within the last 10 years like they really get irritated by people like stopping by right and taking pictures and all that but to me it's like well i mean you know what happened there obviously people are they're obviously people are interested in it like they're gonna swing by right so you think like you bought it you should know what's gonna happen <laughs> right. like i mean people can be like really intrusive though like people knocking on your door strangers 
I'm sure that happens, and that is going over the line. Yeah, there you're right. I mean, there is a line, like just stopping and snapping pictures or whatever. Right. But people do probably cross the line. Like, hey, do you mind if we take a tour? <laughs> Right. Maybe they could charge money. Like, no, we're in our pajamas. Like, it's Saturday morning. <laughs> Kathy had three children prior to their marriage, so the house definitely had all the space that they needed. George and Kathy knew that the murders had occurred in the house, and upon the request of someone they knew, they had a priest come in to bless the house upon moving in. The TV show In Search Of did an interview with the priest in 1975, and the priest only agreed to be interviewed if he could remain anonymous. He claimed that while blessing the house, he was in what would be Kathy's sewing room when the room turned oddly cold and he heard a deep voice say, Get out! Is that what it sounded like? It did. <laughs> Just like that? That doesn't sound very scary to me. <laughs> he felt that this was directed toward him. He also claimed that he felt someone that was not there slap him in the face. He stated later blisters appeared on his hands and face that his doctor could not explain. This is when he called Kathy and George, but due to noise interference, couldn't get through on the phone. Hmm. George and Kathy Lutz, along with their children, only lived in the house for 28 days before they fled the home on January 13, 1976, in the middle of the night. They didn't take their belongings, they went to Kathy's mother's house. There were claims of a pig with glowing red eyes, greenish black slime oozing down the walls, doors being ripped off the hinges, cabinets slamming shut. There were also claims that Kathy would levitate and that her appearance would change to that of an old lady at times. The children's beds would move up and down and slam against the floor. George also claims that he would wake up at 3.15 every morning, suspecting that this was because of the time that the murders took place. George and Kathy never returned to the home. Paranormal investigators John and Lorraine Warren were called to investigate the home after the Lutzes left. They took a photographer who set up cameras to auto-capture images and a news crew. They did capture a picture of a boy that appears to be about the age of nine peering over a staircase railing. Did you see that picture? I did. I've seen it multiple times throughout my life. This isn't like the first time. I don't think I knew it was from this story, though. Like, I don't when think I've ever seen, seen it previously. I'll have to take a look at that. Jeff's Googling that, so we'll see what he has to say. There are mixed emotions from people everywhere on this picture, but the Lutzes and Warrens claim this is a picture of a ghost child. They feel more specifically that it is the ghost of John Matthew DeFeo, who was nine at the time of his murder. Others believe this is a picture of Paul Bartz, who was an investigator assisting the Warrens that night. The person in the photo has white eyes and appears short, but I feel I have seen old pictures from the 70s and 80s with red or white eyes plenty of times. Yeah, so looking at the photo, it actually it looks like both of them. It looks like the son john and it also looks like the guy that was there the paul yeah especially with the hair part yes the hair's parted the yes. same way on both of them i mean clearly paul would be much taller but yeah so he, i mean he could be like setting up equipment he could be kneeling down like yeah. moving wires around 
Yeah, I looked at it too and I thought the same thing. It looks like both of them, especially because of the hair. And that was like such a common hair part to have like in those days. <laughs> right, it was too. I mean, it definitely does look like a child, but I feel like pictures often don't look exactly like what they are. It could be an adult. I don't know. It's really a hard say. Yeah, that. so the one I'm looking at has like a zoomed in of the face. And it does look like a younger... Lorraine Warren claimed that the house was haunted. She stated that she felt, quote, an overwhelming feeling of horrible depression. She stated that it was the only house in her whole career that she would never return to. There are just so many controversial claims. Some people believe the Warrens, and some believe them to be very upstanding demonologists. Others believe that although they offered their services for free, they made bank off of the publicity, the book and movie deals surrounding the cases. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about the Warrens and their body of work. Yeah, I, I, I can't say one way or another. I would have to look into them specifically like a lot more before I made a decision. I mean, so I know I remember like in that movie, um, The Conjuring, which is kind of what really brought them more mainstream as far as people that didn't know who they were. I know that in the beginning of the movie, they, they go and look at this house, and, like, people think it's haunted, and uh, John, you know, shows them what's happening, and it's not haunted. It's, like, pipes that are making this noise, and there's a breeze coming in from over here. Like, how often did they really do that, where they went in someone like, nope, all good? <laughs> you know, like, I feel like... Yeah, I don't know. It could have happened a lot, but I think that... I think that didn't they more often, and, and I don't know, I shouldn't be commenting on this because I didn't look into them and just like their line of work as a whole. I think that they specialized possibly in like haunted objects, which I guess like a house would be like a haunted object. I don't, I don't know. I could well, be wrong. I, no, you're right. And I think. Because they collected the, them, right? Right. They had their little demonology room. Right. That was on, like, under like 17 deadbolts, which I'm not really sure what would do against demons. But... <laughs> Well, I think it was more to keep people out of the right, room that would right. like, mess with the stuff. And like, I think a lot of it centered around, um, like you talk about the objects, but the objects were what was haunting the house. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. it's not necessarily the house that's haunted, but this object that's in it. I don't know. We'll have to look into them more. Well, some believe that the house was built on an Indian burial ground and that Ronnie DeFeo was possessed by the angry spirit of an Indian chief. But local Native Americans stated that there was no evidence that there was a burial ground anywhere in Amityville. And they also claimed that even if there was, their tribe is about peace and they aren't going to haunt people in that way. It just isn't part of their tribe's ethics. I picture this like popping up at an Indian tribe council meeting. You know, yeah, so these people are saying that, right. you know, that house, like it was on a new burial ground that the chief was haunting them. Like, okay, we'll release this statement. <laughs> <laughs> they're just, they just, like, they just like shut that down like hard. They're like, yeah, no, we don't do that. We're not about that. Move on. The priest that originally blessed the Amityville house was eventually identified as Father Ralph Pesaro. Pesaro? Maybe. Some people believe his word. You know, he's a priest after all. They aren't supposed to lie. But other people say that his story would change and he ended up contradicting himself. Also, I mean, priests do lie, right? Uh, yeah, I mean... I mean, there's like whole, you know, controversies and scandals and, you know... Oh, yeah, child, child molestation yeah. Right, for years and it's years like a, it's like being a big covered thing. up. Yeah. Right. 
Some claim that the Lutz family were trying to get out of their mortgage because they couldn't afford it. Others state that the Lutz family was affording their mortgage just fine. They did have a large down payment, but you know, I don't know like how large. I have heard it stated that the house was only $80,000, but you know, I did that price comparison earlier and $390,000, this seems pretty expensive. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a waterfront property. It's a, it's a huge house. It's beautiful. I mean, and so even though they had a big down payment, they could have been in over their head. I mean, I didn't see like their finances really outlined anywhere. Um, I don't if, think they're over in over their head after 28 days, though. Right. Like, you haven't even made a payment yet. That's true. <laughs> you know? like, That's really how, true. How bad could it be after less than a month? And I did, like, hear, like, the children, um, one of the children stated at one point, like, that because of the property being, like, so big and things just the like where it was and things like that like there was like a lot of like cost cutting that the family could do like the dad was like moving his like office or whatever into the home things Mm -hmm. like that like they had like they were making arrangements to like save money so at one point the Lutz family contacted William Weber who just happens to be the lawyer for Ronnie DeFeo and this is in their like their first 28 days of living there I thought that was really strange he claimed later that after a few bottles of wine, they all concocted this story together. He claims it was a commercial venture from the start. Others believe that Weber's claims are false since the Lutz family lost their belongings and money when they sold the house. They lost about 20000 on the sale of the house after they fled. But later, book and movie deals were made and ABC Go states that the family only netted about $300,000 from the story. Over only? how long, though? I don't know. I mean, it could have been years it later. It could have been. But just because it didn't work out the way they wanted it to doesn't mean that wasn't their plan. Oh, I definitely think they were up to something. I definitely think they had ill intention in mind the entire time, and that's why they bought the house. It was also said that there was a red room in the home that was evil and had the stench of rotten flesh and human excrement. This was a small storage area under the stairs. Patty Camarado made a video for the TV series, That's Incredible, in the 1980s. She stated that she had been friends with the DeFeo children before their murder and that the area was used as a small toy storage area when the DeFeos were alive. In the video, she opened the door and went in, claiming she had never felt anything strange in the area and that it was a normal room in the house. She played with the other children in that room often. I remember the 2005 movie about the Amityville Horror uh, with Ryan Reynolds really focused on the Red Room as being like this gateway to hell kind of thing. It did kind of look creepy when she went in there. Like, I could see, because there was, like, red paint on the walls, and it was, like, peeling and stuff like that. But, you know, she was just like, we played in here all the time. Yeah, you think they would have noticed the rotting flesh smell. Right. And what does rotting flesh smell like? Like, do we we know that, like, as average (laughs) citizens? Like, have I ever smelled that? I've never smelled, like, rotting flesh. I don't know. I don't know if I'd be able to pick that out. Yeah, I don't think I would be able to pick it out. I think police officers can probably pick that out. They're, like, trained to pick that out, you know, police dogs. Cadaver dogs. Yeah, they can pick that out. DeFeo has also said that he lied about the voices all along. He was trying to create an insanity plea. 
There are actual court documents from him where he claimed nothing supernatural ever happened in the house. The Lutz children, when they have spoke about the house, seem to believe that it was haunted, but that the actual story that came from it was exaggerated. Daniel stated that he has always had nightmares after living in that house, and Christopher stated that he feels his stepfather helped create the issues in the house by dabbling in the occult. George and Kathy Lutz took lie detector tests, administered by a well-known and respected person in this field, and they passed. George and Kathy are both deceased, but they maintained their stories throughout their entire lives, even after their 1980 divorce. Yeah, I mean, the lie detector test, whatever. You know, it's, I think it's impressive. Like, if I took a lie detector test, I feel like I would fail, even if I was telling the truth. <laughs> I would just be so nervous. Right, but, I mean, if, you, if you've concocted all of this, and, you know, it's not a lie if you believe it. Right, so, you've told it over and over right, and right. over again. You probably would end up getting so comfortable with this It kind of, it almost reminds me of that. Whenever I think about that, I think about that, uh, that Diane Downs case, where she just repeated that same bullshit story so many times <laughs> and she was so psychotic that she didn't even seem she was just not even nervous whatsoever she was just having a great time no but like when you hear her when you hear her tell it she felt you she looked like she believed it you know what i mean yeah even though it was so obviously bullshit right <laughs> but like that's what i'm saying like when you like if you believe it, you can convince others of it. Right. Or try to, even, anyway. Even the machine. Right. So I don't know if I think that, you know, this was a haunting or not spawned by these murders. If it wasn't, I think that it is really hateful to create all this from a mass murder. I think that that's just like a horrible thing to do. But to me, the biggest evidence lies with the fact that nothing else was ever reported to have happened in that house. And despite claims from the Lutz family and the Warrens that the entity was like following them, things seemed to have remained relatively normal. Or at least I didn't see any evidence that they didn't. Yeah, and you know, I mean, why can't people just be crazy? Can't Ronnie just have been a crazy, disturbed individual? all the time. Why's it gotta be... We, we always have to make so much more out of it because we like to we like things to be explained. Right. We like things to be explained. We don't understand. We don't understand why right. people would do these horrific things. And that's why they interest us. But some people are just crazy. And this story spawned so many movies. Altogether, there were 28 Amityville movies. I couldn't believe that. I, I couldn't either. And I mean, The Conjurings were also inspired by this as well. So, I mean... 28 movies. Wow. It's just, that's a massive amount. And I mean, there were books as well. It's just so many. So, I mean, the, just in that, I mean, the story was exaggerated greatly. I mean, 28 movies worth of, of exaggeration, <laughs> right, right. you know? And all of them have the creepy windows in it. Every single one. <laughs> that's why they change those. If there's 28 movies, there, God, I can't imagine how many books there probably are. Probably over 100. Yeah, I tried, like, looking that up a little bit, and I'm sorry I gave up. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that concludes our podcast for today. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. 
We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we also have a YouTube channel. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or contributions, you can email us at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. We'll be back next week. Stay safe, and remember, evil people are everywhere. Tell somebody you love them. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us an Apple Podcast five-star rating, sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, then you can go tell it to your diary. Or you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support.